Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick Series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Professor Daniel Shaw. Mr. Shaw is the managing editor of the Film and Philosophy Journal. His examination of Kubrick's work, titled Nihilism and Freedom in the Films of Stanley Kubrick, appeared in the book The Philosophy of Stanley Kubrick. When you say A Clockwork Orange only makes sense if it is a celebration of, of human freedoms, what are you saying there about the film? Well, um, little Alex is a moral monster. There's no mm-hmm. question about it. His ability to uh, engage in ultraviolence without batting an eye is a, a scary potential. But it is the potential of any human being who is free. And uh, robbing him of that potential with the Ludovico treatment I think is depicted as more inhumane than anything that Alex does at the beginning of the film. That's why I find uh, A Clockwork Orange to be one of his most life-affirming films, despite its controversial uh, subject matter. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the ending celebrates Alex's return to form. Uh, it celebrates his uh, recovering his ability to engage in evil acts. And it celebrates it because uh, human freedom is only bought at the price of the potential for human evil. Mm -hmm. And uh, the value of human freedom in that film is affirmed in the face of its greatest challenge. Uh, That somebody like Alex must be possible Mm -hmm. in order to have the freedom that makes human beings human. I think one of the things that, more than the portrayal of of sex and violence in the film, I think that one of the things that bothered people most about the film, scandalized them, was the fact that there seemed to be no moral judgment on Alex. Well, I think that uh, Alex is, I don't think he is, He's romanticized as some kind of boobermensch or mm-hmm. something to be emulated. Um, it's just that his monstrosity is far outweighed by the uh, the potential of a society to take away the freedom of its citizens by mental conditioning. Uh, that is a far more monstrous possibility. Mm-hmm. But the, and he's also portrayed as obviously someone that commits horrendous acts of, of, of violence. Uh, but he's never so alive as when he is committing those acts. And at the same time, he's also someone that is deeply moved by Beethoven. I mean, there there, there seems to be a, a real acceptance of the, the dual nature of, of man in all of Kubrick's works. Yeah, the sublimity that makes a Beethoven... Possible, I think, is uh, has has similar grounds uh, to 
what makes an Alex possible. Uh, uh, I love the novel Dr. Faustus by uh, Thomas Mann. Mm-hmm. He goes into that uh, that very theme. Uh, the protagonist in that novel sells his soul to write the, uh, the counterpart to the ode to joy, but it's an, an it's a lamentation. It's a nihilistic ode to meaninglessness. Brilliant, brilliant uh, novel. Mm-hmm. How do you view these themes uh, of, of human free will uh, manifesting themselves in some of these other titles in Kubrick's works? Well, I think that that he takes various positions in in, in various films. It seems to me. I think that uh, some of his films are are, are very nihilistic. Uh, mm. very kind of hopeless. I find eyes wide shut to be that way, especially about the potential for authentic uh, human romance. Um, Paths of Glory, I think, affirms human free will, certainly in the uh, in the choice of Colonel Dax not to play into the corruption of the French upper echelons and to stand for the values that he holds. Uh, he's certainly a heroic figure in, in Kubrick's oeuvre. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, let me see. Who else? Well, you say that you say that uh, Clockwork is his most life-affirming movie, second only to 2001. Mm-hmm. It's very Nietzschean, not by accident, as he used Strauss's. Also, Sprach Zarathustra is the uh, the opening and the and the ending theme. It's a it's a vision of uh, humanity evolving that mm. uh, I think I find exciting, and and certainly an alternative view of uh, of alien life as well as intervening for our good is opposed to our evil as so many such contact with alien stories seem to go. It's interesting to me because some people that I've spoken with view Eyes Wide Shut as one of his most optimistic films. And and, and your view is it's it's one of his most kind of nihilistic. Uh, yeah, I put it in the context of uh, early Sartre as well. Um, Sartre's kind of ex- explosion of uh, notions of romantic love and being in nothingness. Um, Sartre there describes romantic love as having a kind of self-defeating nature. On the one hand, we want recognition from a free person Mm -hmm. who can withdraw their love. On the other hand, we want to objectify the other, have control over them so that they can't, and that these two kind of contradictory tendencies are what blows up most romantic relationships and it seems to me that's kind of thematized in in uh, eyes wide shut um when what is it bill horford bill horford uh, yes sir is um is so grossed out by the very thought that his wife could even have a fantasy of another man that he's driven to this kind of Freudian trip into the underworld where everything is coitus interruptus, 
where, mm -hmm. where every every attempt at realizing his erotic desires gets cut off at the at the knees. Um, and we're supposed to believe that at the end of this, he's going to reunite with his wife, and they're you know all is going to be fine. They'll fuck, and uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> That that relationship has little future, as indeed their own had. His films are so diverse in setting and genre, but do you, do you see a, a thread that connects all of his work thematically? Well, I think there's there's several threads. Um, there's so, certainly a profound cynicism about war. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, from his very first film. Um, through Paths of Glory, through um, oh, I can't think of the one, the period piece. Barry Lyndon. Yeah, Barry Lyndon. Uh, and then, of course, Full Metal Jacket. Um, mm. Certainly, uh, not to mention Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> very, very deep and recurrent theme. I, I, I kind of conclude that you're not going to be that virulently anti-war unless you think it's going to have an impact. It's not a hopeless kind of anti-war. I think he really, I think he really did have an impact. Good gosh. Yeah. Uh, nothing dr dramatized the implications of mutual assured destruction better than Doctor Strangelove. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he had a fascination with obsession. Uh, from Lolita uh, through Dr. Strangelove and, the, and General Ripper and, uh, characters that have just overwhelming passions mm -hmm. um, I think he had a fascination with art and, and whether art can help justify life there's in in his portrayal of war, which you're right, it's a, it's a, it's a theme that he was particularly fascinated with and returned to time and time again. Um, I, I remember reading that he said that he made what many people view as his anti-war film with Paths of Glory. So with Full Metal Jacket, he was more interested in just examining the phenomenon of, of war. Uh, how do you think that film? differs from the other Vietnam films of that time, the platoons and and so forth? Well, I was just reading an article, and I, I can't remember where right now, about the use of music in Apocalypse Now mm. and in Full Metal Jacket. Uh, in Apocalypse Now, it very much uh, created the kind of immersion effect. In, in the milieu of the late 60s and early 70s. And it made it all rather intoxicating. You know, the, the, uh, Ride of the Valkyries helicopter attack or the, um, the Rolling Stones when the, when the guys, um, skiing behind the, the PT boat. Mm -hmm. uh, but the effect of the, of the music in Full Metal Jacket is uh, is, is like uh, Bertolt Brecht's Fremdung's effect, 
if, if this kind of distancing, this kind of alienation, this kind of, of cognitive dissonance uh, that doesn't allow you to just get into it. And that's, I think, part of his effect. I think Bertolt Brecht had that as, as his intent initially, with that idea, that kind of, uh, of, of distance us from, from becoming immersed in what is so intoxicating about the experience of war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't think they, there's really a point at which it is intoxicating in part because of the use of the music. And also he's, it seems to be told from a, I think someone said like a, a God's eye point of view. Yeah, but I mean, that's not atypical of Kubrick's films. There's always a a bit of distance. There's all, always that crane shot, mm-hmm. that high angle shot. Um, That that gives you that that kind of big picture, that kind of looking down on people that should be more reasonable than they are, and look more like warring ants than human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for the sequence where they where they they the, they go into the the factory area at the end of Full Metal Jacket when you are first person point of view, one of the grunts in the line. Mm-hmm. And then it starts becoming a little intoxicating again. Now he switches from that to uh, people dying ironically from booby traps and snipers and stuff like that. There's nothing very intoxicating about that process. There's also the in, in Full Metal Jacket, the portrayal of the the female Vietnamese sniper that that many have said when people have complained about the the seeming lack of humanity in the film, uh, they point to that that scene in particular as as evidence of the film's heart. I, I imagine. Well, I mean, it just seemed to underline to me the. <clears throat> The pointlessness of the Vietnam War. I mean, it's a, a, a perfect metaphor for how powerless our technological superiority was in the face of uh, commitment. When a scrawny young girl can hold off a whole squad of Marines, mm-hmm. <laughs> kill three of them, and or more than that, maybe. Um, you know, it's the perfect the perfect metaphor for the hopelessness of that struggle. Mm. Uh, first time I saw it, that, that it, it goes right from that to Mickey Mouse. To Bright. Um, was really jarring. I just, I was, I was left with a bad taste in my mouth. But in the long run, I've come to think of it as genius. Because it's the Disney mentality that got us into that hmm. situation. It's the, the American democratic ideology taught us in part by Disney that there is one universal ideal political system for all places and all times. and It is America's destiny to 
stuff it down the world's throats. Yeah. We're definitely seeing that now. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, it's God, Aristotle saw the mm. screwiness of that idea when he said there can be no one ideal society. The only question is what is the best possible society or best possible form of government for a society at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes Saddam Hussein is better. <laughs> Hard to believe, but true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You teach, you teach philosophy in film. Mm-hmm. So, do you find that that you you call upon Kubrick's works uh, often in your in your in your teaching? Oh yeah, uh, it's. Um, I have a book that's now under consideration for uh, by Continuum Books. Uh, they're starting a new series called Filmgoer's Guides to Philosophy. <clears throat> and uh, mine uh, will be the first in the series, I believe. Uh, it will be on, on ethics. And my section on, uh, on A Clockwork Orange and its affirmation of freedom will be in a chapter on freedom and determinism for that book. <clears throat> I, uh, I'll be using it in a big 90-person section next semester, in fact, <coughs> which is how I started out doing this. Big sections in the humanities are coming as faculties get cut back, and the only way to cover students is to stuff sections full of them. Yeah. And uh, this was how I envisioned being able to teach philosophy to such big sections still keep their interest. So. What what other filmmakers do you find that you, that are, are particularly valuable for this this approach? Oh gosh, they vary greatly. Um, not so much filmmakers as themes. You know, I do mm-hmm. things like Hobbes versus Locke on. Uh, state of nature and forms of government and watch something like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is the coming of the of law to the Old West. Mm. Or um, read a couple of philosophers on capital punishment and watch Dead Man Walking. Mm-hmm. Or um, A Man for All Seasons and Divine Authority Views of Christianity. Um, signs and the problem of evil. Uh, there are a lot of philosophical films out there. It's surprising. You you make me want to take your class. <laughs> well, uh, it's it is in great demand. Students are 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 remarkably visually literate. They're not literate anymore, but they are visually literate. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, and and they still have very very genuinely inquiring minds. Uh, I know I teach a problems in philosophy course too, uh, looking at uh, uh, theories of time travel and paradoxes associated with that, and watching a film called Twelve Monkeys. I'm mm. familiar with it, but uh, absolutely, Gilliam, Terry Gilliam, yeah, a brilliant little uh, uh, puzzle box. And you know, you students get bad wrapped these days that they're they're not intellectually curious and they can't follow anything that's too complicated. 
And this was the favorite film in that course. Hmm. A lot more accessible stuff, a lot more kind of immediately practical stuff on ethics or political philosophy. And this was the hit of the of the semester. Hmm. And when people came to have choices of what they could write on, they all wrote on it. And most of them understood it, the implications of it. It was uh, it was exciting. That's that's really in- encouraging. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I mean, I I I keep thinking that we've we've lost the power of of critical thought, uh, and, and, and so the, the the fact that your students are obviously invested in this process is is, is really encouraging. Yeah, I don't think the students have lost the power of critical thought. They've just lost the will to apply themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I have classes this semester where oh, half a dozen out of forty will read the material regularly, and the rest don't feel guilty. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't they can't be browbeat into into doing the work. Uh, they simply uh, are, are inured to the notion that they should have proper study habits, um, mm. and it's not—it's not a matter, matter of intellectual curiosity. It's just a matter of uh, <laughs> their sedentary natures. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But with Kubrick, I mean, I, I find that the, the Kubrick's films are particularly valuable because. Films that I first viewed 20 years ago, say, uh, of his, and obviously I've seen them many times over the years, but they can, their, their meaning and the implication and depth of feeling, uh, expands for me each time I, each time I see them. And I, I, movies that I might not particularly care for at first, like, like Mm -hmm. The Shining. Like The Shining, and and now I, I look at The Shining, and it is stunning to me. <laughs> yeah, I guess I was because wanted with The Shining as well. Um, I, I thought the uh, the resort to the supernatural was below him in many ways, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I've come to appreciate it more, especially by contrast to the uh, to the novel, which pretty much puts the the supernatural front and center as opposed to the ambiguity yes. that takes yeah. within this film. Uh yeah, it's you know, great great films are like great novels. They become touchstones. Uh you go back to them at various junctures in your life and they mean different things because they have such meaning in them and you have changed. Thank you.